morning. Uh, just a couple thoughts about what Chad just explained. Um, I come before you this morning, very thankful for the opportunity to share some of the things that the Lord has impressed on my heart. And it, uh, it's a joy to me to function within a church that has strong male leadership. It does not make me feel bad about myself in any way, not to be an elder. Um, I think that God values women just as much as he values men, but he does set up a paradigm in life for the family, for the church. And it shows that he wants strong men to lead. And I will say um, for the past 16 years, Tad and I have been in pastoral ministry and women thrive when strong men lead and um, everybody benefits when strong men lead. It doesn't put a woman down. It doesn't limit her. It doesn't hinder her in any way. It allows her to more fully exercise her gifting. So I come to you this morning. I have never spoken at a church service before. I've done some devotions and I've done women's teaching. I've never spoken during the main message part. So I, I'm humbled and I'm really excited to, to tell you what the Lord has laid on my heart. Um, so I'm Susan Trapp and I'm married to Tad. And along with my good friend, Lynette, I head up the women's ministry. So we do, uh, we do women's events. We do a lot of one-on-one -on -one discipling with women. That's kind of what the Lord has trained us up to do. And it's what we love the most. And I think I, my, my feeling is, is that that's where the best stuff happens. Um, it's not usually uh, at con big conferences and retreats and things like that, that you're going to get the best things. It's, it's one-on-one -on -one, face to face. So that's the way we function as a church. Um, it's small and it's more intense and I'm a disciple. I'm a learner and I'm never going to be done learning. I'm actually, I'm 56 and I am learning now more now than I have ever learned in my entire life. You don't get to a certain age and then coast you should keep it just like, I mean, it may get steeper, but it gets more fun. It gets more full. And so I'm, I honestly am learning more than I've ever learned in my life. And God has been so, so faithful. So, um, yeah, I wanted to, uh, well, I was asked to, to step in this morning because, um, am I supposed to hold this thing the whole time? What do I do? Seems weird. Okay. Um, because there was a gap in the teaching schedule and, um, so I am not doing the next section of Mark because that's not what was on my heart and it wouldn't benefit you or me to stand up here and talk about something that I don't really have a burden for. So with their permission, I'm skipping over to one of my favorite, my favorite passages, um, in all of scripture, but especially in the book of Mark. So I'm going to go out of turn and I'm going to take you to the end of Mark four and okay, good. So this is a well-known passage and in the life of the disciples. And I, there's a lot of artwork, boy, artists back in the Renaissance, they loved, they loved to paint this scene. This was very, very popular. And so the reason why this is one of my favorites is because um, I'm going to take you back to the summer of 2008 and Tad and I had at that point been a couple years in a small town called Ellsworth. We had been in Denver doing street, um, 
inner city ministry. We had been in Chicago. He was working on his PhD and we were going to go probably, probably to Africa, or maybe he was going to teach at a seminary somewhere. And in the spring of 2006, the Lord said, I want you to go to Ellsworth, Kansas, which I was familiar with because my sister and brother-in-law lived there. Um, but I cannot express to you how different Ellsworth, Kansas is than Chicago or Denver or Washington, DC or St. Petersburg, Russia, or any of the places I had ever lived. And um, I left Chicago. Uh, I was very sad to leave. I had really good friends. I, I loved it there. And I was, I had to deal with a lot of fear about becoming a pastor's wife. Um, we had not done pastoral ministry. We'd done inner city. We've been overseas, done a lot of different things, but never pastoral ministry, with, which comes with a lot of risk. It comes with a lot of danger. <laughs> And I had seen family members who were in ministry really be hurt deeply. And so I wasn't, I always thought that the Lord would never ask us to do that. And um, he surprised me by saying, that's exactly what I want you to do. So I, when I married Tad, um, he, he married me because I, I was willing to learn, but I did not know much. I couldn't do much. Um, but the Lord brought us together and I was seeking the Lord and I, I supported him. But for much of the early years, I didn't, I wasn't in the trenches with him. I wasn't partnering with him in the battle. I was, I was seeking the Lord and, and blessing my children, raising my children and supporting him. And it was an important role to play, but my heart in Chicago, before we, before we left, my heart was crying out to for God to be my pure and holy passion, my one magnificent obsession, and my glorious ambition. And there's a song that goes along with that. My heart was crying out to do more, to actually know something and to be able, honestly, to be able to encourage people the way people had encouraged me. I had some friends there where they ministered to my heart because they had sat at Jesus' feet. They knew how to encourage me in the middle of trial, and my heart longed to be able to do that. And so the Lord answered my prayers, and he often answers prayers. I think he always answers prayers the way you will not expect. Um, I had a, growing up, I had kind of a primitive theology. I, uh, I'll be a good person, and I'll do the right thing, and then my life won't have trials. And I think that's pretty common. Um, so I thought, well, everything I need, I'll sit at the Lord's feet and he'll just tell me in his word and then I'll go on my merry way. And I do have to say, if you do what God tells you, if you follow his commands, your life will be free of much of the trials of life, but not all of the trials of life. You cannot escape the trials of life in a fallen world as as a, a person still inclined to to sin, even though you're saved and and surrounded by a world full of sinners, you will find trials. They will find you. And we are a teaching ministry. We are an intensive discipleship ministry. This is the key. If you don't get this, you will never you will never mature. And. I would have not wanted to hear that when I was your age, I realize, but this is the truth. It's trials where you learn everything and they are so worth it. So I want to encourage you guys this morning. Um, so 
We moved to Ellsworth in the spring of 2006 and uh, it was so good. When, when I married Tad and I didn't, I didn't know a lot. I, my heart's cry was, God, I don't ever, I don't ever want to hold him back. I don't ever want to hold him back. I knew he was light years ahead of me and it was a privilege to be married to him. And I, I just didn't want to hinder him because I was weaker because I didn't know, because I was more fearful. Um, so I just determined that, well, whatever God told him to do, I was going to go and I was going to trust. So I was afraid to go to Ellsworth, but I went because you can be afraid. Just don't act according to fear. <laughs> Give it to the Lord. So, so I came and I have to say, jumping ahead, it was amazing. It was nine years of, it was like a little bit like boot camp for me, but, uh, what God did in those nine years to help me, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't have anything to tell you today if I hadn't been through that. And, uh, it was painful at first, but God taught me through so many trials and he surrounded us with kind people. Um, the church, it had been a church split before we got there. And so that's not a great detail. <laughs> that's not something you want to walk into because in a church split, two sides are bitter at each other and they both think they're right. And that's just a mess. You know, it's like, let's, you know, going in between two lions going at it or something. It was, it was a mess. Um, Ellsworth was in a drought. There were cracks in the earth, like four inches wide. It was hard. It was just like, I thought I have landed on the moon. Where, where am I? Um, but I didn't want to hold Tad back. And so I went and the Lord used those years to so, so bless me. I'm very, very thankful. But this picture of the disciples in the boat with Jesus, um, two years after we got there. So I'm going to take you back to the summer of 2008. And I am standing beside Tad, worshiping before church. And I am... I am struggling because the more that Tad did what God told him to do, he would open up scripture. How do you start a church? How do you, how do you, how do you build a church? Well, you go to first Timothy, you get the leaders that are, that are biblically qualified leaders. Well, that didn't go over big with people who like, they wanted a part to play in the church and they wanted to be important and they wanted to roll the play. So they just got mad and bitter and left. So after two years on um, the summer of 2008, I'm standing in worship and I'm just like, God, what are you doing? This is, we're dying. There's like people are, there's maybe 30 people left. Um, and I, I have to say, Tad doesn't remember this. He doesn't remember this. He doesn't even remember that even being a thing. Why? Because he had been trained by God, the peaceful fruit of righteousness that comes from the person who's been trained. They go through trials and are like, yep. God's going to use this. He doesn't even remember that. And here I am because I hadn't been trained so well and I needed the training. I'm, I'm worshiping God. And in my head, I say, God, don't you care that we're perishing? And I realized I just quoted, I just quoted scripture. God, don't you care that we're dying? We're dying. The church is dying. We're dying. We came here and what for? So I realizing that I'm quoting the disciples, like I don't even sure I remembered where it came from. The Lord didn't scold me for saying that. He took me by the hand that day. He's like, let's go look at that passage. And I did. 
And that's why it's one of my, my favorite, favorite sections of scripture. So a little of the background, um, the disciples get in the, oh, it's not advancing my slides. How do I do that? Just click on them. Um, so the day, the, the day before they get into the boat at night, but it's kind of interesting, a little background on the disciples. Um, they, and a couple chapters earlier, Jesus had anointed them to take authority of demons. And uh, Jesus, it says he didn't speak to them. That's the multitudes. He didn't speak to the multitudes without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his disciples. And I would bet you they were pretty confident. Like we have the authority to, to, to take um, control of demons. And he's been sharing us with us privately all of this inside information. So we understand the parables better than the multitudes do. And I just bet they got in that boat. Like we're doing, we're doing pretty well, which is probably how I felt in 2008. We had been through some really wonderful trials back in Chicago. And I, we came, we came to Ellsworth healthy and ready to go and, and still trials came. So a little background on the, on the, uh, on the disciples. So let's read this passage in the end of Mark on that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So the trial starts with an invitation. Jesus says, let's, let's go over to the other side. Um, I am pretty sure that the disciples had never been to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. If you know the Sea of Galilee, when we do it, our Bible track, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea, um, the western side of the Sea of Galilee is mostly Jewish and it would be familiar to them. It was there. It was Capernaum. It was the places that they were from is the places that they would have fished and sold their fish. But going to the other side of the sea just wasn't something that they probably would have done or even thought that they should do. So Jesus gives them the invitation. Let's go over to the other side and they go in confidently. So if you want to be, if you want to be with Jesus, if you want to be in the trenches, if you want to live a life that's useful in the kingdom, you have to be willing to go where he wants to go. Where is he going? Are you willing to go where he wants to go? And it's going to be a place you've never been. And it's probably going to be somewhere that you don't think you want to go. So it's not going to make sense. And here's one of the keys in a trial that you realize it shouldn't make sense to you. You don't need to understand it, but you need to learn to walk by by faith and not sight. Sight, Walking by sight is what all of your senses are telling you, how you reason your way through it, how you can understand something based on what you, the knowledge you have in your mind. Um, and trials are specifically set up to, uh, to set you free, but they have to be, you have to walk them by faith, faith in what Jesus says and faith in who Jesus is. So Jesus knows where you need to go. He knows where you need to go for him to make you into the disciple, the, the soldier, the mighty conqueror that he wants you to be. He knew where I needed to go, and he knew I needed to go to Ellsworth, and he knew exactly the kind of trials that I needed to go through. And I would say trials 
are not, they're not caused by God. God uses them. This world is full of trials. Some of it's because of people's sin, your own sin, other people's sin, or just because we're in a fallen world. And we can see that God created the world perfectly. It didn't have earthquakes and tornadoes in the first couple chapters of Genesis. He made it perfect. And then sin came. It's our fault that the world has fallen and it's our own sin and other sin is that, that causes the, the trials in our lives so often. Um, but he knows where you need to go in order for him to make you the disciple that he wants you to be. They needed it. And every disciple needs it. You don't, you don't get a free pass. You don't get to just, well, I'm just going to learn at Jesus feet and I won't have to go through any trials. Um, you, you need this and I needed it too. And I still need it. So, and so did the man on the other side. And this is one of the reasons why I love this passage is because it isn't just this scene in the boat. It's where they're going and what Jesus is going to do when they get to the other side. It is mind-blowing, mind-blowing. One man, in the book of Matthew, it says there's two. In the book of Mark, it only records one, probably because he was the one who responded. And so he's the one that gets the gets the uh, the chapter. But um, yeah, one one man was worth this whole trip. And you also, as a follower of Christ and a disciple, hopefully a disciple, you don't want to miss it either. So then comes the test. And so everything that they're feeling and seeing is telling them you're going to die. The wind and the waves, I think the waves on the Sea of Galilee get like 10 feet high. I mean, that, that would be terrifying in the dark, in the middle of the night, and you're going over to a place you've never been before. This is, this is beyond where they probably had, had been in their boats. Um, the water was high and the boats rocking back and forth. And Jesus is asleep in the back. So in a trial, you're not going to understand and you're confused. And that's where you have a choice to make. So what was the disciples' response to this trial? They immediately accuse Jesus of not caring. And so I probably can't say this enough, but you don't know how good he is unless you know it in a trial. If you don't know it in a trial, you don't really know it. We all say, well, I know, I know God is good. I know he's loving. I know he's compassionate. Do you know that in a trial? If you know it in a trial, then you really know it. So they had been walking with Jesus for a while. They Again, they'd seen him heal people and um, teach. And now their first response is, don't you care? Don't you care that we're dying? You said, get in the boat and go across and you're just going to sleep and we're going to die and we're bailing out water and, we're, and our feet are wet and, and our boat's about to tip over. Um, they immediately question the character of God. In the middle of a trial, God does not say to you, come on, this isn't that bad. Just toughen up. I think a lot of, I think a lot of you think that that's how God speaks to you. That in a trial, he's, he's just dismissing you because come on, it isn't, it isn't that terrible. That's not what God says to you in a trial. He says, trust me, trust me, trust me. If I said that we're going to the other side, we are going to the other side. So don't look at your circumstances. I know, I know it's, there's water in the boat and I know that you're rocking back and forth, but I'm at peace. So you're supposed to be at peace. That's faith and not sight. Every, every trial is ultimately a test of your theology. Everybody has a theology. It's just the, the pieces that you have put together about God and you got it from random places. Some, maybe your grandmother, or maybe going to church a little bit or a nice book that you read, or just the, what the world has told you, you have a theology 
And every single trial is ultimately a test about that theology, um, what you think about the character of God. And this is exactly what the enemy is going to go for. He's going to target your view of God. He wants you to, he wants to interpret your trial. He wants to be near you as you're going through the trial, whispering to you, telling you, and this means this, and this means this. Do you see? This is, this God doesn't love you. He wants to interpret your trial and tell you, yeah, you're dying. You're done. You better panic now. Um, and God doesn't care that you're perishing. You know, he's napping and too bad for you. Um, he wants to convince you that God isn't listening to you. He wants you to be convinced that God doesn't love you and that he just wants to make you suffer because he likes that kind of thing. He likes suffering. He likes to see his kids suffer. And there's, there's no point in it. There's no point to suffering. There's nothing going to happen. Um, I, the lie that I heard when we first went to Ellsworth, because to me, it felt like such a sacrifice to make, to leave what we were doing in Chicago and go to the small town felt like to me, like a really big sacrifice. And the lie that I heard in my mind was, it's not going to matter that you came here. You can go ahead and, you know, try as hard as you want and pray. It's not going to matter that you're here because I have had control of this town since time immemorial. And it just felt like the enemy just wanted me to believe that it didn't matter what I suffered. It didn't matter how hard we tried. It didn't matter how diligent Tad was to do the right thing. It wasn't going to matter. Um, well, well, I'll tell you that at the end. Tell you, it didn't matter. Anyway. So yeah, one of the biggest lies about suffering is that it it is not going to matter and there's no point to your suffering. So go ahead and suffer. God doesn't care and he's not even listening to you. And so you can't trust him. If you can't trust his love when you're in a trial, then you can't trust him at all. So if the enemy can get you to doubt God's character, he has a place in you and he will leverage that. And the thing about, about having uh, an accusation against the character of God is that it builds resentment, it builds bitterness in you, it builds self-pity in you. And from that place, the devil will take over everything. He is never going to be satisfied to have just a little piece of you, just your, maybe your relationship with your mom or, you know, a relationship with a coworker or just that little sin or addiction or habit you have. He is not satisfied with a little bit of you. He will, he's out to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to destroy you. And if he can't have your salvation, then he will try to wreck your testimony. Um, he will make sure you don't have joy. You don't have that abundant joy that, that Jesus promised you. Um, he will get you to doubt the character of God. And from there, uh, Hebrews talks about, about bitterness springing up and defiling many. And I have seen this, I have seen this in parents, parents that get bitter against people, which is ultimately getting bitter at God. And it spews out and it defiles their children and their children learn this and their children learn bitterness at their feet. It's, it's an ugly, ugly thing. And we have to realize that we're all, we're all prone to this. This could happen to any of us. So bitterness at God is the enemy's favorite open door. Yeah. But if you trust God in the storm, I just want to tell you today, you will know the love of God. Do you long for the intimacy of God? You long to like really know him. You see other people who seem to have such intimacy with him. And maybe you feel like I did, like you're kind of on the outside looking in. It's through trials. This is the trials are going to be what ushers you into that intimacy that you are, you're just dying for it. I prayed for it and God answered my prayers by giving me trials. Um, you'll have joy and peace in any situation. Think about the, the, the apostle Paul. He is, he's in prison singing. He's facing death and he's rejoicing. He's not shaken by anything. Um, 
you can conquer fear and be mighty in faith. And then the devil can't stop you. He can't get a hold of you if you don't, if you don't accuse the character of God. So trials are like a fire. Um, scripture says a lot about fires, uh, refining. So the trials are a fire that show what you actually believe. It tests, it proves, it makes evidence. So, you know, God is good and that he has a wonderful plan for your life. And you can quote Jeremiah, but then during the trial, what all is lost and accusations come. It it's very revealing and we need this. We, we can deceive ourselves and think that we know things about God and we believe him for things that actually when a trial comes, it's proven we don't really. So in the very first book written to the new church before the gospels were written, before Paul was even converted and all of his epistles are written, the book of James was written by the half-brother of Jesus. Um, and in the very first book to the new church and the very first words that he says are, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I read this passage. Of course, I hope you guys have all memorized the book of James. Um, I remember reading this when I was probably like your guys' age and the word endurance stuck out to me because the Holy Spirit, and he's so gentle. He doesn't scold you or slap you. He's gentle. He's like, I realized, boy, I don't have that. I don't have much endurance or I know I don't because when things are good, I'm good. And then when things are bad, I'm like on a roller coaster and it's a terrible ride. It's a terrible ride. So James is telling us the first thing he says, the first thing written in the canon of scripture to that new church, let endurance have its perfect result. You have to participate in this and it isn't work. It's yielding. You have to trust who God is, what he has said. And let endurance have its perfect result that you might be, and it means mature. doesn't mean you're going to be without sin. You'll be without a lot of, without much, much sin, but you're going to be mature. It means to be complete and whole. You're no longer lacking. You're no longer weak. You're no longer knocked over by a feather, which is kind of how I felt when I was younger, that any trial would just throw me. Um, yeah, that you might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing, lacking in nothing that you need to walk in victory to walk in joy, to help other people. So the most effective trials are aimed right at your deepest fears. And so I, I think um, that I bet you that the, the disciples, those who were fishermen, and I guess at least four of them were fishermen, I'm not sure what everybody else's job was, but I would bet you if you were a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee back in the first century, one of your greatest fears would be drowning, wouldn't it? I mean, that probably there were probably friends who never came back and boats that washed ashore empty. I mean, that would, that would be a significant fear. I would be, you'd be terrified. That thing that you always worried and your wife always worried about, or your family always worried about. And there you are in the middle of the night and it's dark and, and it's filling up in the boat and Jesus is asleep and you're, you're done for that thing you, what you were so afraid of is going to happen. Um, <clears throat> so the best trials are aimed exactly at the bullseye of your fear. When I, when we moved to Manhattan and we went through another trial. So this trial, when I look back at this trial, I was like, that was nothing. That was a little baby trial. That was nothing compared to some of the things that have happened since, but they, they get, they get richer in a way they don't, they're harder, but yet not harder because if you yield to them, God builds you up and he gives you strength and he gives you faith that it helps you to endure. But I think, um, you know, fear uh, is, is a huge bullseye in people's life. And God, God wants to 
He wants to deal with that. He won't take you all the way around your fear. Oh, you're afraid of, you're afraid of people. Well, then I'll take you all the way around. We won't get anywhere close to, to disappointing somebody or, um, you know, or going crosswise on somebody because you have to obey God. So I think the, the disciples, some of them were fishermen. So that was, I mean, nobody wants to drown. So it's going to be everybody's fear. But I think another fear that they had to have faced, if you look through the gospels was who was the most powerful group in that day? It was the Pharisees. And what does their teacher, their master that they're following, he is making them mad. And for me, as somebody who, who, you know, has had to let the Lord deal with me on the fear of man, that would be terrible. I'm not even sure that drowning might not be better than to, to have to face off with the Pharisees. I mean, they controlled everybody. They're the ones that everybody looked to. And then Jesus is like, you're, you know, you're vipers, you're a pit of vipers, you're whitewashed tombs. He, and they have to watch and they're supposed to be learning. I think that was a, a really significant fear that trials had to, had to free them from in their life. So, yeah. So the lesson, who, who is this? Who is this that even the sea obeys him? He's more than a teacher. They said, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? What do they learn? He is more than a teacher. He's a good teacher. He's a wonderful teacher, but that's not all he is. And if you only know him as that, then when you hit a trial, I think like a lot of people today, people bail out. People just say, well, that didn't go the way I thought it should. I think, I think God is not good because this trial is happening to me. Um, I think they're deconstructing from a faith that never really existed. I think they're they're struggling with their own their own lies and and um, fears. You have to let the Lord take you to that place where He wants to set you free and show you that He's He's more He's more than a teacher. Do you know Him? Do you really know Him? When you really know Him, you know Him in a trial, and trials are difficult. And so you can lean on the body also to pray for you to encourage you. Probably one of my greatest privileges as a uh, a discipler is to help women through trials because that's what's going to happen. That's what's happened in my life, and it has always been worth it. So to encourage other women to let that trial have its perfect result, let endurance have its per- perfect result, that you might be more complete, more mature than you were. So why why did you doubt? Jesus says, well, they doubted. They doubted his word and they doubted his love. When I left church that day and I went home and I looked at, at this passage, my first thought well, was, Jesus, well, what did you expect them to do? What, what would faith have looked like in that? Did, were they supposed to stand up and calm the sea? No, that, that's not what he expected of them. Were they expected to maybe curl up in the back of the boat and just take a nap with them? Like maybe, but I think what he wanted from them was to believe if Jesus says you're going to the other side, you're going to the other side. No discussion. Circumstances tell you nothing. Don't follow your life by circumstances. Don't think that circumstances is the primary way that God's going to speak to you. It isn't. That's how a, that's how a small child would follow. God wants to lead you by faith. So if he says you're going to the other side, you're going to the other side. And he wants you to believe who he is. Who is he? He's the, he's the manifestation of, of God's nature. He's the radiance of his glory and the exact manifestation of his nature. He is the father in flesh, the father revealed all of the love, all of the patience, all of the mercy um, in the flesh. So yeah, again, every trial is ultimately about the character of God. So as James tells us to consider it joy, trials are God's invitation. He's, he's inviting you 
to a deeper intimacy with him. It isn't for nothing, but he wants to set you free. Every invitation comes with a promise. When God invites you, when Jesus calls you to go with him, there's a promise that you will get there. Don't doubt it. He will be there. He won't abandon you. He's not going to abandon or forsake you. And he'll use everything, everything, everything for your good and his glory. And I would say another surprising thing that the Lord has shown me is that he doesn't only use the trial you're in now and he will use any trial. It doesn't matter what kind of trial. There's no trial that is that doesn't qualify for this. Every trial qualifies. But did you know that God can even use a, a trial from your past? Maybe a trial from your childhood. He can take you back. He takes you by the hand and he leads you back to that place of trauma or hurt or difficulty or pain. And he can even redeem that trial. You don't have to just start where you are. He will go back and heal you from things that, that happened in the past. And you can have the blessing from those trials as well. So he will use everything for your good and his glory without trials. We have puny faith. And that's, that's the little, that's the term that, um, that Jesus uses of his disciples puny faith, which is kind of, kind of funny, but also not a huge compliment. Um, puny faith. They had very little faith. So Jesus is the teacher. And then he calms the storm with a word. Who is this? He wanted their faith to grow. So trials are a doorway. God is opening up to you a doorway out of the, of the theology, your bad theology, the, your, your, the wrong way you look at him, the wrong way you look at you, the wrong way you look at life. He wants to fix it so that you can enjoy the abundant life that he died to give you. And he brings freedom from fear, freedom from shame. He'll show you if you let him, if you spend the time with him, what you're actually afraid of. And for me, I was afraid of shame and shame was you came all the way here. And it isn't going to, doesn't matter at all. Look at you, you know, just came to do a church and then it's empty. Like, I guess that didn't work. So it was just such a fear of shame um, that God has had to set me free from fear, from failure, from being rejected, from being hopeless, from being in despair. Um, when I was in Chicago, one of my dearest friends, Brenda, um, she was going through trials, but she, she was one of those people, um, for sure. Tad was such a strength because he had been through it. And the trials that I were going, I was going through, they weren't that hard for him because he'd already been through trials. So that was a huge strength. So please husbands, (laughs) let God do in you what he needs to do. So you can be a man of strength. Um, and my friend Brenda had been through many trials and, and, uh, her encouragement was to me lean into the fire. Uh, some friends you call in a trial and they'll be saying, well, that's terrible. You deserve better than that. And how can God do that? And how could those people do that? That, That's the kind of friend that friend will not bless your heart. They mean, well, they love you, but that's terrible advice. The good friend who knows the Lord and who is intimate with the Lord knows to tell you, trust God. This is how he works. Lean into the fire, let him do it. And you'll be out. And, and not only will you be out and the outcome that you long for will be there, but what you will have learned in the trial is better even than the outcome, but it's the process. So lean into the fire. So everything, everything, everything has to do with your conception of God. That's, that's the root of your, your real problem is not your circumstances. Your real problem is not your husband or your wife or your job or your family uh, or your financial situation, the real root of your problem is that you just really don't have the right conception of God. So God loves you too much to leave you there. So he's going to offer, he's going to give you an invitation to go to the other side with him. And that is where you're going to have your theology corrected. Um, he does everything by invitation. He's not going to force himself on you. 
He didn't force them into the boat. He said, hey, let's go to the other side. So they gladly got in thinking, well, yeah, we're the disciples. We're the inner circle. We, we know him and we're going to get to do something really exciting. And then a storm hits. So he does everything by invitation and it's up to you to accept that invitation to, to let endurance have its perfect result. So in the lesson, what, what did they learn that he's powerful, that he's not just a teacher. He's something more than a teacher. He's powerful. He can calm the storm. He has a heart of compassion. When they get to the other side of that lake, that's why Jesus came and they had seen him heal. They had been watching him and he teaches, but this is going to blow their minds, his compassion. And it also revealed his training plan for them to be disciples, to really be the kind of people, the men at his resurrection, he can hand over that message, that mantle and tell them to go into all the world. They couldn't do that. They would have been absolutely useless and weak had they not had the trials that Jesus led them to go to. So it reveals, it reveals a plan that every disciple needs to go through. So once you accept his invitation, you may be in a trial right now, or you may be not in a trial and afraid of a trial. Don't be afraid of a trial. Don't go looking for it. It'll find you, but trust the Lord that it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen without his presence with you. And it comes with a promise. His invitations always come with a promise. If he says you're going to get to their side, you're going to get to the other side. Um, yeah. And then the first verse of Mark five, and they came to the other side and I would have loved I would love maybe, maybe in heaven, we get to see like a movie of some of the things that are previous. I would love to have seen their faces when they arrived on the other side of the sea of Galilee in this, sorry, this man, I gave him a little text box to cover him up because <laughs> there are children maybe. Okay. Well, Alex, it does. Um, yeah. When they arrive and they realize they went through all that for this man this, he's not a Jew. Not only he's not, he's not a Jew. He's, he's crazy. He's, he's gashing himself. He's harming himself. This is what people do who are broken and who are tormented. And you, you know them probably. And they're just like this man and they're, they're cutting themselves and they're breaking chains. Everybody who loves them has tried to do everything that they can. People put chains on them and try to try to keep them safe. They've done everything they can do for him. And there's nothing more to be done. But somehow Jesus knew that this man was there and there were two men, but one, one came, Jesus knew that this man was there and this man chooses to go up to Jesus and kneel down. And when Jesus sets him free, this man says, can I go with you? I want to go with you. And Jesus has a better plan for him. He says, you stay and you tell people. And when Jesus comes back later, the crowd come down and they bring their sick. So he needs people who can minister with him. He needs people who can partner with him because there are so many of these people across the sea. Maybe this was you. Maybe this is you. Um, this is what it's all about. There couldn't be a better life than this. There couldn't be a better life than to be in that boat in the storm and land on the other side of the sea and get to bring freedom to somebody. So um, if you feel like the trials that you have been through are too big, too painful, too traumatic that God could ever use them for good. I want you to come back next week and hear my friend, Tina. My friend, Tina has one of the most tragic childhoods I've ever heard. Just unfair. No, no explanation. Just 
terrible, sinful, unfair, unjust things done to her, but she is redeemed because the love of God broke through and she is healed and she is being more healed. And if you think that God can't use a trial you're in because it's something really ugly, you need to come back and hear Tina. Also, one of my, my heroes is Corey Ten Boom. And she, um, she was about my age, you know, she'd just been a woman. She never got to marry. She fell in love with the guy. And then he kind of, she was not wealthy enough for him. So he married somebody else, broke her heart, but she served the Lord. Um, she was one of the first people to do ministry among the, the disabled. That was just not being done in, in Holland back in the twenties and thirties. But when she was about my age, um, the Nazis came through her country and, she had hidden some, she and her family had hidden some Jews in there in a secret compartment in their home and someone turned on them. Uh, so someone betrayed them. Someone they trusted betrayed them and told the, told the, um, the Nazis that they were there. So she and her father and her sister um, were taken to different concentration camps. Um, her sister, Betsy, ends up dying in the concentration camp, but Corey says, there's no, there's no pit so deep that the love of God isn't deeper still. If God can use the Holocaust, it was terrible. It wasn't, he didn't, he didn't cause it, but he can use it. He can use anything. He turned that around and gave her a worldwide ministry of preaching the love of God and, and preaching the very important aspect of forgiveness. So she had a lot, if she had chosen to be better, she had good reason to be better because the concentration camp guards had, had mocked them. You know, the women have to walk unclothed in front of these Nazi guards and, and uh, her sister, you know, was um, cruelly treated and ends up dying. So she had, she had reason worldly speaking to be better, but she knew that God was good and she knew that she could trust him. And she knew that he was going to take her to the other side. So she ended up getting to live. And I think another like 30 years uh, ministering the gospel all around the world. So God wants people who will take him up on his invitation and it comes with a promise. If he says you're going to get to their side, you will. And on that other side, he has marvelous things for you to do to participate with him. But it begins with the trial that you say, Lord, I will trust you. I will trust you. I believe what you said and I believe who you are. So I'm just going to pray for us and then we're going to get to celebrate baptism. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your your power. God, thank you, Lord, for inviting us to partner with you. Thank you, Lord, that your word guides us through trials. And I pray, Lord God, that all of us, Lord, would learn this deeper and deeper. Father, thank you that today we get to celebrate baptism. Thank you, Lord God, for the, your redeeming love. Thank you that you use everything. You don't waste a thing, Lord God. You use it all for your glory and for our good. And so we just trust you, Lord, we trust you with our trials. And I just pray that there's anyone here today that's really struggling and has an accusation against you in their heart, Lord, that they would let that go. They would, they would turn from it, Lord, they would repent of it and, and pick up faith, Lord God, and trust you that you're with them and you, um, you keep your promises, Father. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen.